Now is that time when we gather that we will turn to the Lord and hear him speak to us through his word. And we're going to be back in Ezekiel again. We're going to take a few more weeks to try and wrap up that study. And um, I'm really excited about that. I know it's a challenging book, um, but I think it's the right kind of challenge, challenge that we need. And uh, of course, of course, it's the right kind of challenge, right? It's God's word. It's his holy word. Whatever it says to us is right and good. And so I'm going to invite Scott and Doreen uh, Pupilo forwards and uh, I'll be reading chapters 18 and 19. I think the um, it's page 837 in your pew Bible. If you desire to have it right there in front of you, we we're going to put it in the bulletin, but that would have added like six pages to the bulletin. So didn't want to do that, um, but it'll be on the screen as well. Thank you, guys. We've got um, a couple pages there. I'm just going to say right up front, there's some Sally by the seashores in here, so I'll try my best. (laughs) You'll see what I mean when we get there. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, If he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and woman, between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. Does not defile his neighbor's wife. Does not oppress anyone. Exacts no pledge. Commits no robbery. But gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, 
obeys my rules and walks in my statutes, he shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Mine is much shorter. It's chapter 19. <clears throat> And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother, a lioness? Among lions she crouched in the midst of young lions. She reared her cubs. And she brought up one of her cubs. He became a lion, a young lion, 
and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was caught up in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. He prowled among the lions. He became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men and seized their widows. He laid waste their cities, and the land was appalled, and all who were in it, and all the sound of his roaring. Then the nations set against him from provinces on every side. They spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit. With hooks they put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into custody, that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches, by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers' scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. The fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Scott and Doreen. You guys did really great with that. <clears throat> and thanks to all of you as well. I know sometimes you can sigh when you're coming before a, a long passage like that, but there really is something beautiful, something very special about reading Scripture in large chunks like that. I think it's a good habit to cultivate, and why not on a Sunday morning? So. I want to invite some of you as well, those of you who have already joined the group, thank you for that. Um, we've got a dozen people now reading through the Bible in a year together, and if there's any more of you that are interested in that, please see me, or you can sign up in the back little uh, clipboard there, and I'll add you to our, our list, and we'll read several chapters uh, a day in God's Word together. Well, as a kid, I remember going to the beach with my extended family during the long Labor Day weekend. This was a tradition that our family practiced for many years. Cousins, aunts, uncles, a great number of us would go uh, to the North Carolina, South Carolina beaches uh, on that Labor Day weekend. And when we would go, we always took Monopoly with us. Any of you guys out there, Monopoly players? Yeah, I see some hands. Some Monopoly players out there. I remember just loving that game when I was in my early teenage years, probably about my oldest daughter's age, me a little older. I don't think I was really good. I don't know that I was anything to write home about, but I always just enjoyed the game. And it's funny, but a couple of things I remember very well about those days of Monopoly playing uh, stand out to me. One of them in particular was that I had this fear of going to jail. So the Monopoly game board, right, you've got the four corners 
One of them is jail. I guess I think one of the other ones is like just visiting or something jail. But I had this fear, this sort of irrational fear of going to jail. And you know, the, the game board again is laid out in the square and there's four corners. And that one corner was like the dreaded corner. And I was all, always dread when I would kind of get in that corner. Now, Felicia, if you have that image, you go ahead and pull that, that up. I mean, some of you recognize this here. Well, because of this fear, one of my favorite cards in the game to get in the game was a get out of jail free card. If I had this card... I kind of felt confident about my chances for some reason, even though it was a little, just a little small part of the game. For some reason, it really, everything was as right as rain when I had this card. I'd play against my much more skilled cousins. Uh, some of them were you know, a few years older than me and, and did quite well uh, with Monopoly. But if I had this card, I had some peace when I was playing against these skilled cousins. But it's, anyway, it's funny the things you remember. This is one of those memories from our beach trips that stand uh, stand out to me get out of jail free card but today this card has actually become kind of iconic well maybe not the card itself but the slogan right you've heard that slogan before get out of jail free card uh, wikipedia which is the most reliable source of information information on the internet haha says that the card or the saying, get out of jail free card, has become a popular metaphor for something that will get you out of an undesired situation, right? So maybe you're in a tough spot between a rock and a hard place. Uh, you're stuck in some uncomfortable situation and maybe you say, man, I wish I had a get out of jail free card, right? You ever heard someone say that? Maybe you've said that before. The idea is it would get you out of the situation and you're on your way. Well, today in our land, we have managed to create such a card, believe it or not, in our land today. With our modern ingenuity and genius, I'm being sarcastic with that, we have come up with a way to escape every uncomfortable situation and every problem that comes our way. We have a similar card that we like to play This card goes even a step further. Not only will it get you out of jail, this card even manages to absolve you from your sins and all responsibility. This card removes your guilt. This card takes away any blame that might be laid at your feet. Today's get out of jail free card is the victim card. In our land today, everyone is a victim And what that means is that no one in particular is responsible for anything. And when no one is responsible for anything, everything can be laid at the feet of someone or something else. Can it not? But this approach, I was kind of kidding with the whole modern day. We've discovered this, you know, new way of dealing with responsibility or created this get out of jail free card. This card, this way of thinking was alive and well in Ezekiel's day also, as we'll see. And God has given Ezekiel a message for the people as it relates to this. And the message is this true absolution from sin, 
True pardon from sin, forgiveness can only come through heartfelt repentance, not through claiming a victim status. In other words, only in admitting your guilt and flying to God, going to God, can you be freed from it. It's the only way to be freed from your guilt. And this is what we're going to look at today in our passage so the big idea, uh, big idea I'd like to try and get across today is this. Because the soul who sins shall die, which is mentioned two or three times in our passage, if you sin, you, you will die, you will have spiritual death. And because the soul who sins shall die, each of us must personally repent of our sins if we are to live. If you are to live, you can't lay it at someone else's feet. You can't justify it. You can't point the finger. You've got to come and say, I have sinned, God personally come to, to God and do that. So I've got three major points about this for you this morning. But before we jump into that, I'd like to quickly refresh on what is going on here in this very interesting book. Now, some of you were here when we were going through Ezekiel. Uh, I guess it would have been wrapped up like around last uh, November-ish sometimes. It's been a couple of months since we've uh, been in Ezekiel. So some of this will be very familiar, but I think it's good to just remind ourselves of what's uh, going on. Last year, when we looked at the first 15 chapters of Ezekiel, and I passed over a a couple, and I'll explain more of kind of my logic behind some of that as we go on in the series. I'm not going to do that right at this point. Uh, But when we looked at the first 15 chapters of Ezekiel, we learned that Ezekiel is far from his homeland. He's not at home. He's not in his native country, Israel. He's in a place near ancient Nippur, which is about 100 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. And Felicia, if you've got that image, you can go ahead and pull up that image. We believe that Ezekiel would have been right around that red uh, little icon there. And you can see he's a long ways from his home in uh, Israel and Jerusalem. Ezekiel finds himself here because his homeland has been invaded by Babylon and he, along with several thousand of his countrymen, have been carried off into Babylonian uh, territory and captivity. And after being there for nearly five years, suddenly the Lord appears to Ezekiel in this amazing vision. And you can read about that vision in the early uh, earlier chapters of Ezekiel. The Lord tells him that he's going to be a messenger to the people there in Babylon and proceeds to give him a series of messages to take to the people. And this morning we're going to be looking at a couple of these messages that the Lord asked Ezekiel to give to the people. Now those of you who have been following along with us through the study of Ezekiel know that the methods that God has asked Ezekiel to use have varied significantly. They've been different, far from just having Ezekiel stand up and preach a sermon. You know, I'm thankful I don't have to do the things that uh, God asked Ezekiel to do. But far from just standing up and, and sharing the message, he's asked Ezekiel to do things like perform street theater, kind of like charades to act out the message and to do all of these bizarre things to, to show um, Israel what was coming. He's given Ezekiel uh, parables to tell to the people and and asked him to to deliver the message in other really interesting ways. But another method that God has taken with Ezekiel is to give him, which is what we're going to see this morning in our passage, is to give him a commonly accepted proverb or adage 
And then he tells Ezekiel to share how God is going to prove that proverb or that saying wrong. So this is one of the techniques that we'll see uh, coming through uh, today. But we actually saw this not too long ago. Again, it's been a, a few months, but not too, too long in the book ago. In chapter 12, we saw this happening with the expression, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. This was a commonly accepted adage or proverb at the time. In other words, yeah, 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 Ezekiel, yeah, Jeremiah, all you guys have been saying that, you know, bad things are coming. It's not, it's not happening. It's not ever going to happen. This was like such a commonly accepted thing that it had become like a proverb in their day. And God says through Ezekiel, get ready because it's about to happen. I'm about to do the thing I've said I'm going to do. When our passage before us today, again, Ezekiel must confront another commonly accepted proverb. And that proverb is right there at the start of chapter 18. If you've got your Bible, feel free to take a quick look. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is a strange thing. I mean, maybe we sort of get the gist, but at that time, apparently, this was a commonly accepted proverb that was said frequently, repeatedly. But what is the meaning of this proverb? And why is God out to set the record straight? Well, this leads us to our first major point this morning. Point number one. Each of us must personally acknowledge our own sins if we are to live. This is our first point. This rolls right out of this proverb. The first step in true repentance is acknowledging our sin. And this is precisely what the people in Ezekiel's day were not doing. You see, the capital city, the holy city of Israel, Jerusalem, was under attack at this moment when Ezekiel would have been delivering this uh, message. God had been warning the people through the prophet Jeremiah, who was actually preaching in Jerusalem during Ezekiel's lifetime, telling them they had not followed God and that because of their lack of repentance, judgment was coming. And here in the book of Ezekiel, we find that Ezekiel had been busy delivering that same message to God's people in Babylon, where he is. So you've got these two guys out there telling people judgment is coming. And they're saying everything is going to be laid to ruins because of your sin, because of your lack of repentance. And this is what the covenant that God had made with the people many centuries prior demanded. God had made a covenant with them. And the people had entered into this covenant saying, we'll do these things that you're calling us to do. And if you do them, blessing will come. And if you don't, there will be judgment. And the people in this moment for, well, not just in this moment, but for many generations now, instead of repenting and listening to the prophets that God was sending, instead of acknowledging that they had broken covenant with God and disobeyed his commands, what have they been doing? They're whipping out their get-out-of-jail-free cards, aren't they? That's what they're doing. Or their victim card. It's not our fault that this is happening. It's the fault of our fathers and their fathers. That's why Jerusalem is under attack. Because of them. It's because of their sins, their wrongdoing, that we're in this predicament. One scholar writes these words, quote, The meaning of the proverb is that the parents had sinned. That is, they had unwisely devoured unripe unripe grapes. 
but that the children's teeth were set on edge because of the acid taste for which they had no responsibility. He goes on. The implication was that the fathers, rather than the innocent offspring, should have tasted the bitterness of their misdeeds and that there maybe was something wrong or something amiss with God's economy, with God's ruling. It's not my fault, God. I'm innocent. I'm the victim here. So often when we are caught in wrongdoing, this is our default response, is it not? We come up with clever explanations and justifications for why we did what we did. We can come up with some scenario that perfectly explains our actions and absolves absolves us of any guilt. But let me say this clearly for all of you to hear. There is never an excuse for breaking the law of God. Never. Listen to God's words in verses 3 and 4. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. He says, if you sin, you die. Period. Boop. Period. Like Adam and Eve in the beginning, they disregarded God's command. It seems like a small thing. I took a bite of a piece of fruit. Oh, and by the way, I was led astray by that woman. Oh, and by that serpent. The woman says, serpent. The victim card, right? Boom, right in the very beginning. It's not my fault. Someone else made me do it. God says, no one made you do it. You did it. When we break God's law, when we disobey his commands, if we are truly repentant, we will acknowledge what we've done instead of seeking clever explanations or justifications. We will say, yes, I agree with you, God. I broke your law. I was wrong. I am guilty. Not my circumstances, not my wife, not my husband, not my friend or my coworker, not that random guy on Facebook who's always trolling and posting crazy stuff, not my president, not my ancestors. I broke your law because I broke it. That is true repentance. And that's point number one. Yet. At the same time, point number two, each of us must personally recognize our sinful influences as well if we are to live. We are influenced by our surroundings. We must personally recognize this. We must acknowledge this. In other words, we must be aware that our sins are often the sins of our time and place. Our personal sins are often the sins of our culture and our context. And that's because we're malleable and we're easily steered one way or the other, often towards evil. If we're to live and not fall into the traps and the evils of our culture and our time and, and, and of those of the people gone before us, we must be alert and recognized. We are influenced by them. This is critical. In this next section in chapter 18, God gives us some examples. A righteous 
uh, a righteous man and his wicked son, who then fathers an, a righteous son. And the basic point in, in these examples is that each generation must answer for the sins that they themselves have committed and not for the sins of others. But I want you to look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Yet you say, verse 19, got your Bible there. Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So I think what's happening here is that God is predicting the response of the people. God says, the soul that sins shall die. And they're saying, but wait a minute. They are objecting. They're saying, isn't there this thing called corporate guilt, God? This thing where, you know, and it's actually an emphasis in Ezekiel and many other places in uh, the scriptures. Even Jesus talks about, about this. And we talked about this a few weeks back when we were uh, doing Ezekiel about corporate uh, guilt. And we actually see that even in our passage here. A couple of times right in this section, he calls them the house of Israel. He speaks to them as a whole. He's not confronting, you know, just person to person, but as a whole house of Israel, turn and live, he says. And corporate guilt was something taught in the Ten Commandments. And so this is very much in the Hebrew mind here. And, and so I think they're coming to God and saying, wait a minute, God, if you look at places like Exodus 20, where the, one of the places we see the Ten Commandments in Scripture, you read that he will visit the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. This would have been very firm in the Hebrew mind, in the Jewish mind. That's what we call generational sin, and Scripture does teach it. Even Jesus' teaching, again, touches on it, as I said a moment ago. So God, in verse 19, again, sort of wrestling with what's happening here, predicts their response, that they will point to this concept of generational guilt, saying, well, our fathers did all this stuff, and we're suffering for them. So how can you say that you know, the soul that sins shall die. And, you know, we're, we're not even guilty here. We're dying and we're not, we've not, we're not guilty of this. But God's response is, as always, brilliant, right? He's God. He basically says to them, okay, well then, if you're not guilty, then why are you doing the same things your fathers did? That's what he says. The proof is in the pudding. In other words, that's how generational sin and guilt works we're talking about sins that are handed down and committed over and over, generation to generation. That's how it works. The way we know someone is no longer guilty, right, is that they've stopped doing it. They don't repeat the errors of the parents like the grandson mentioned in the example earlier in this chapter in verse 14. What this means for us is that we must personally recognize these sinful influences around us. We are so easily made like the things and the people around us, right? You must be alert to how you are being influenced. 
I want to give you an example. If you were to turn to the book of Isaiah, if you remember, we heard a sermon uh, by Aaron Lorette several months ago on chapter 6. And he talks about this moment when Isaiah is given the vision of God in the throne room. Maybe some of you remember that story, that account. I want you to pay careful attention to the words that come out of Isaiah's mouth when he sees the Lord. He sees God in his throne room and what's his immediate response? Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm lost, he says. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice here in this passage what we see. We see both personal guilt and corporate guilt. Both side by side. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. But then he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see that? Do you think it's coincidence that both of these sins are the same? Is that coincidence? The things he confesses and recognizes before God are the same. The unclean lips. Is that coincidence? No, of course not. Isaiah is aware of his own sin. But he's also aware of how he's influenced by his surroundings. He's influenced. He's aware that his sins are in part what they are because of whom he lives amongst. That's corporate. It's a corporate understanding of guilt. And this is what true repentance looks like. It looks around and says, this stuff is influencing me. I'm prone to this too. I'm a fish in water. I'm guilty of this too. And I don't even see all of it. I don't understand it all. God, forgive me. Help me to turn not only from my own sin, but to not be sucked away or drawn away by the sins of my culture. Now, with that in mind, what are the things around you and me that are influencing us? What are the cultural realities around us that we need to confess like Isaiah? That we need to seek understanding as to how they're influencing us. What are they? Woe is me. I live among a people of death. An overly sexualized people. A greedy people. A selfish people. A divided people. An angry people. And you know what, God? That describes me pretty well too. That's what Isaiah did. And I think for most of us, if we really look inside, we would see how these things have influenced us and how we are also guilty of those things. This is how personal and corporate guilt go together without contradiction. If we are to live as we're called to in this passage in Ezekiel, it goes to the people and says, turn and live. If we are to do that, we must recognize these things. And this must be a part of our repentance. And that's point number two. Point number three. Each of us may, must personally receive Jesus Christ by faith if we are to live. This is my final point. Each of us must personally receive Jesus Christ by faith if we are to live. For this final point, I don't have time to elaborate in great detail. I typed it all out trying to 
make all the connections and connect all the dots. And I just felt like there's no way to do that in, in a brief amount of time. What we have here in summary is Ezekiel mourning the collapse of Jerusalem and the Davidic lineage of kings before it actually happens. So Jerusalem is under siege in this moment, hasn't fallen yet. It's going to. He recognizes that. And here he is lamenting it before it actually happens. Now, um, Bible interpreters and scholars believe that this passage points back to Genesis 49. If you were to flip there and take a quick look, you don't have to. What you're going to find there is Jacob giving blessings to his sons. And one of his sons is named Judah. And Judah was the son through whom the kings of Israel were to come. And um, one of those kings would be David. And, of course, Jesus. We're going to get there in just a moment. But many believe this to be a lament built around that blessing that Jacob gives to Judah. There's a lot of similar language and stuff going on. So basically, Ezekiel here is mourning in this very interesting um, song, if you will, or prayer or dirge um, in chapter 19. He's basically mourning the seeming fall of the promises to Judah and his great, 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 great grandson, David. Ezekiel knows what's coming and he mourns it before it, it happens. Ezekiel knows God made promises to David that there would always be a king on the throne. How's there going to be a king on the throne when there is no throne? When Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed. How, God? And basically, the message is this. Again, without a million thoughts and explanations here. The kings and the leaders of Israel have failed. Even David. Even the temple. The sacrificial system failed. The prophets failed. The law failed. It's not working. But they were intended to fail. God had set them up intentionally. Again, without tons and tons of theologizing here. God had set them up to fail. In other words, they were not to be saviors. They couldn't do what the people were looking to them to do, which is to save them. No building can save someone. No lamb can save someone. No king can save someone. They were not saviors. The law cannot save They were not the answers to all the problems of the people. And the people were looking to these things for salvation. God was their savior. God was their answer. But they wanted these other things to save them. But God intended this all along to reveal these things and to show the people all of these things. Let me give you an illustration. Two of my kids are playing basketball right now, and I think we're finally at a place where they're starting to have fun. Uh, At the beginning, it was kind of like, you know, uh, guys, why are you out there? They're like, you know, they're like avoiding the ball and stuff, and it's really interesting. I was like that too, so I'm not not poking fun. I'm just, it's the reality of the way it is. You get in there, you're nervous, you feel like you're going to throw up, everybody's looking at you. Why am I out here? You know? (laughs) 
First few games were rough. You're trying to figure out things, and it can be really discouraging. It's hard to watch your kids struggle and, and fail, right? But I've had to go back over and over to them, even in those moments, and say something like this. Even failure can be good. Even failure has a, a good purpose. It can be a good teacher. And there are many lessons for us in our struggles and our failures, right? We need failure. It's so good for our hearts. It's so good for us as people. So back to the thing going on in Ezekiel here. What is the lesson here for us? What lesson is there for us in this? What did the fall of, of the temple and of Jerusalem and the failure of the, at least the apparent failure of the Davidic uh, kings have to do with me? What has this got to do with us? What's here for us? Well, think about it. These were the things that the people of God were putting their hopes in at the time. They were thinking, because we've got the temple, because we've got these, you know, these people leading us, even though they were very immoral, they were putting their hope in these earthly things and wrongly hoping in the temple and in their city and all of these, this stuff. But those things couldn't save them. They couldn't do anything for them. They couldn't fix their sin problem. They couldn't make up for their guilt or give them a hope and a future. Only one thing could do that. God. God. And God had set these things up, built in those failures as a teaching tool to lead the people ultimately to him. These were signposts just pointing to God. They were teaching them things about God. But they missed God and started worshiping the things. So why do we put our hope in other things? Why do we strive? For instance, again, we're thinking about, you know, the get out of jail free card and the victim argument that we all use all the time. Why do we strive to win the argument or be right? Guilty as charged all the time. Why do we try and justify ourselves or come up with clever explanations about why we did what, what why we did what we did and what, why it wasn't wrong? Well, the reason I did this thing was because Sally and Bob and so and so and, blah, 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 and that explains why I smacked him in the face. Right? Why I lost my temper and pow! Well, because he see. Why do we lay the blame on anyone and everyone else? We are no different than the folks in Ezekiel's day. Our teeth are set on edge because our parents ate the sour grapes. Somebody else did it. These efforts to explain ourselves and play the victim are our modern temples and our modern Jerusalems. They're the things we believe will save us. But in the end, they will all fail just like they did during Ezekiel's day. Who cares if you win the argument? Quite frankly, right? I mean, there are hills to die on, for sure. And someone often is right. For sure. But is that going to save you? Being right in the argument, right? Is it going to justify you? Are you going to get before God and say, I won that argument, let me into heaven, God? No. Only one thing can save us, and His name is Jesus. Jesus is our get-out-of-jail-free card. It was not free for him, though. There was an enormous cost to be paid. Jesus came and truly was a victim because he truly was innocent in every way. 
an innocent man went to the cross. That is what we call being a victim. And you and I are not innocent. He came, laid down his life for you and me, that we wouldn't have to be clever, that we wouldn't have to be creative with how we explain our sins. We can run to him in our mess and our junk and say, yeah, I did it again, God. And I really wanted to do it because that person, that person, X, Y, Z, right? We can run to him and just receive his grace. And somehow he understands. He gets it. He knows why we did what we did. And understands it. But right, wrong, good, bad. He always gives us grace when we come. He is the one who will give us a new heart. Jesus is the one who puts his spirit within us that Ezekiel is speaking of. Let us heed God's call this morning through the prophet Ezekiel. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Heed that command today. Turn to Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you will live forever with God. No more spiritual death. It will all be washed away. And you will be with God forever. Amen. Let's pray now. And as we transition into a song and sing to our King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the true King on the throne, the heir of David. Lord, we come to you. We thank you. There's a lot of, a lot of thoughts in that sermon. And I feel like maybe I stepped on toes and maybe I stepped on my own toes a few times in that message as well. But Lord, we come to you. No explanations. We just come. And we're thankful that you get us and that you understand. And, and, um, and God, we just, we just acknowledge. We, we personally acknowledge our sin. We personally acknowledge we live in a culture, a very sinful, evil culture, and we are all influenced by that in a myriad of ways, some of which we don't even understand, but we recognize that as well. And we confess not only our own sins, but the sins of our neighbors and all the people around us that are influencing us and impacting us. We, we pray, wash us clean of our sins, God. And we come and we turn to Jesus, the only one who can save. Our explanations can't save us. Our justifications can't save us. Only you can save us. And we fly to you now, to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.